where you are in the political spectrum, we all have a sense that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Wherever we look, whether it's in our immediate community or across the nation or just across the globe, what we see are violence and injustice, apathy and greed, corruption and waste. Most often what comes from our leaders are things along these lines. Um, schismatic quarrels and half-baked solutions. Yet at the same time, churning up within us is this desire still to see things changed. A longing to see some difference. Uh, to Maybe even to go so far as to get involved, get engaged, to make a difference, to uh, make an impact. And that's a, a good thing, a good desire how will it come about? If we have a heart for change, if we have a desire to see things different, to desire to truly make an impact, how, how, does that, how can that really happen in, a, in, a, in an authentic, deep, real, lasting sort of, of way? Let me suggest this. That if you want, thing, if you want a revolution... You need to do things in a revolutionary new way. If you want a revolution, you need to do things in a revolutionary new way. And by that, what I mean is this. Perhaps it's time we pay heed to what Jesus told his followers was the way. The way to follow him. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is the first of the Gospels that we have the first of the books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 5. We are in the midst of an extended series in the Gospel of Matthew, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we just wrapped up uh, a little mini-series within that uh, two weeks ago on the Beatitudes. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1, or really verses 3 through 12. Uh, we are picking up right where that leaves off in verses 13 through 16. But let me just say this, there is such a, a logical causal connection between what Jesus is saying in verses 13 through 16 and everything that preceded it in verses 3 through 12. I'm going to start at chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to start just at the very beginning, setting the stage of the Beatitudes so that you can see the logical flow of why he's saying what he's saying here in verses 13 through 16. So follow along with me in your, your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Hear now God's holy word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 1, we do not want to be like the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked or who stands in the way of sinners or who sits in the seat of scoffers, but rather we would be like the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, on whose law we would meditate day and night. We would long to then be like the tree that is planted by the streams of water and yielding its fruit in its season, its leaf not withering, and all we do prospering. Oh, that is our longing. And you show us, you create that longing within our own hearts and you show us what is the, the way that that longing could be satisfied and it is in following you and heeding your word. We ask you to help us to do that now. Give us ears with which to hear. Glad hearts that are receptive to the wisdom that we find here in the counsel, the commands of our Savior. Jesus' name, His name we pray. Amen. So, where are we? Where are we in this study through the Gospel of Matthew? And let me just simplify this for you, where we are. The King has declared Himself. Uh, the King is Jesus. And the King has come with a message, a proclamation of the Gospel of the Kingdom. That meaning, something along these lines, that the day, the reign of despair and emptiness and broken relationships, and poverty, and injustice, and racism. That day, that reign is giving way to a whole nother reign, a whole nother day. Shalom. Peace. That he, as the king, is ushering in. What then would it mean to be citizens of such a kingdom? Well, Jesus tells us that. He shows us that in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. A, a, a character, a list of character traits a description of, of what it looks like to be citizens of this kingdom, followers of this king, his disciples. Uh, and by the way, as we, I'm going to tell you, remind you of this, we, we've talked about this several times over the last several weeks as we were looking at the Beatitudes. This list is a connected list, uh, an interconnected list. These, these traits are not randomly, haphazardly thrown together as though they just could fit willy-nilly, but there's a, a flow, a logical flow, one to another as you're reading down through them. That would be one thing. Another would be this. Not only are they, are they connected, they are also, for lack of a better word, inclusive, meaning that they are, are um, you can't just pick and choose. It, it's, it's a package deal, this list, this what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom and these individual particular ways of describing that. Well, Jesus says, as you move through that list, and it bridges from the last of the Beatitudes into what we're reading now and looking at here together this morning. Jesus says, if you live that way, you're going to be noticed. Because beatitudinal, I made that word up, beatitudinal living is not natural, nor is it normal. You're going to be weird. You're going to stand out. Now, as a consequence of that, it's going to mean 
one of two, if not both things at the same time. It can mean in some cases a hostile reaction, persecution in some form. And Jesus speaks to that there at the very end of the Beatitudes. And the reason for that is that the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world are diametrically opposed to one another. There can be but one king, you understand. But it's not just the possibility of a hostile reaction, but also the necessity, the inevitability of a wholesome influence. Of a powerful influence that Jesus' followers can and should be having in even this world as it is today. In fact, Jesus intends that. He intends for His followers to have a powerful influence on this world. If you're His, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that is His intention for you. Now, not on you on, on your lonesome, but we together... That is His intention for us as His followers, as citizens of the kingdom together, as a body, to have a powerful influence on this world. We need to, if that's His vision, dare I say we need to embrace that vision. Both the end and the means towards that end as well. And this is, we're, we're getting delving into what, how Jesus puts this and how He explains this. This is a mark here, verses 13 through uh, 16, this is a mark of Jesus' brilliance as a teacher. I mean, he sets before us this astonishing vision, these, these, um, uh, these amazing realities, and using the most common of elements to describe them. Salt and light to get his point across. Let's take a look at them. First, the salt, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The first way that Jesus' followers are to have a powerful influence upon the world around them is to hinder decay. To hinder decay, which is an astonishing calling when you think about it because, you know, when you read through that list, the of the Beatitudes, of what it looks like to follow Him, what are the marks of his, uh, his, the citizens of the kingdom, you, it, would be, it would be okay for this question to come to your mind. What possible good could such a bunch of people like that have? What difference could living like that possibly make in a world like this? Aren't they just going to be overlooked and overwhelmed? Well, that's not Jesus' vision. You think in terms of the metaphor that he's using here. Now, we, we, we hear salt, right? We hear salt and we think of seasoning. We think of something that's kept, kept in, a, in a nice little shaker. Well, in the ancient world, salt, yes, it was used for seasoning. But even more, its value was for preserving. I mean, keep in mind, obviously, this is a long time ago. This is long before the age of refrigerators. This is long, this, it, it, having access to ice, not going to happen. Not in most parts of the world. How then are you going to keep your fish, your meat, from rotting, from spoiling? You take salt and you rub it into the meat. And it preserves it. It hinders the, 
the decay. So Jesus' clear meaning in this is this. The church and the world are two distinct communities. And to the extent that each is true to itself, they will do this. To the extent that the world is true to itself, it will tend towards rotting. It will tend towards decay. Left on its own. The church, however, as she is doing, as we are doing, true to what we are and what we are to be, are meant to hinder that decay. And if you take Jesus at his word, and I know this is a crazy, crazy thing to say, but I'm just simply saying this because if you take Jesus at his word, then what you have to understand is this, this radical implication of, of, of these words, that Jesus is saying the church is God's gift to the world. The church is God's gift to the world. And to the extent that the world dismisses and pushes aside the place of the church in the world, the, the world is therein self-destructive. It is taking a gun to its own head. According to Jesus. According to Jesus. Now, that said, my goodness, what needs to be true of the church to have that kind of influence? Well, Jesus tells us, the salt has to stay salty. Now, I know, I know, you chemists in the room, you're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Sodium chloride, that never, I understand. But, but salt in the ancient world is a bit different than what we think of today. Salt in that time and that place would have come from the area of the Dead Sea. And yes, it would have included what we think of as salt, but it would have also included white powdery substances that was not salt, so that if, when the salt dissolves and is washed off, you've got this other gunk, this stuff, this residue left that frankly is really worth nothing, except literally to be trampled. It could be used like, you know, Put it down your pathway. That, that, that was what it was is used for at, at, at the time. So Jesus is saying the church, in order to have the influence, the impact, the effect that it is, going to, it is meant to have, needs to remain distinct. Two distinct communities, it needs to the church needs to remain distinct from the world. It cannot then be assimilated and contaminated by the world that it is meant to preserve. As is oftentimes said that we need to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. We're called to be the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. An astonishing calling, an obvious condition to that calling as well. My friends, that is who we are. That is who we are. It's who Jesus says we are, the salt, the very salt of the earth. That is our calling. We are to be like the salt, pressed and rubbed into the meat so as to keep it from, from unraveling, from decaying, from rotting. We are to live and to speak the truth, even when that truth is resisted, even when the salt bites, which of course you know, salt does. And we also have to be aware, Jesus is implying this, we have to beware of the possibility of our, of our losing our saltiness, of, of the, the temptation um, to, to be in and of the world, uh, of the possibility that, that we, the ones who are called to influence, are being influenced 
that we the ones who are to stem the tide of corruption are ourselves being corrupted by that which we are to hinder. We have to beware, we have to know what is our calling, but also what is the temptation at the same time. Jesus intends for His people, for His followers, for citizens of the kingdom, for His church, to have an influence on this world. We are called to be salt. Salt of the earth. But that's not the only thing that He says. Not only are we called as salt to hinder the decay, but also as light to dispel the darkness. Now you just see that when you pick up there in verse 14, where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, again, this is an astonishing calling as light to dispel darkness. Um, Again, it'd be fair, it'd be understandable if you read through the list of the Beatitudes and you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, what, what on earth could a group of people who is, who is merciful and meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I mean, how, how are they really going to make a difference? How are they going to make an impact? What do they hope to accomplish? I mean, aren't they just weak and feeble? Again, that's not Jesus' vision. That's also a caricature, by the way, of what those Beatitudes actually are. Again, the metaphor. What is Jesus speaking to here? He's, he, we hear light. We hear light and we think of light bulbs, light switches, flashlights, headlights. Of course, that's crazy in the ancient world. They didn't have anything like that. So Jesus here is speaking of a city set on a hill. Likely an allusion to lime, white limestone walls gleaming in the sun. He speaks here of, of, of lamps being set up on, on, on stands and an allusion here to these little wicker oil lamps that gave off just a little bit of light. And so in, in illuminating houses that did not have windows, you would have to then set them up on a stand in order to, to let it give the most light that it possibly could. The meaning, again, somewhat similar to what the, the last point was with the salt. These are two distinct communities, the church and the world. And again, when each is true to itself, you'll have two different trajectories. The world, to the extent that it is being true to itself, will be dark. However enlightened it will claim itself to be, it will be dark. The church, on the other hand, to the extent that she is, we are true to our calling, will give light, will dispel that darkness. And again, an implication, if you take Jesus at His word, which I would add is worth doing, if you take Jesus at His word, again, what He is saying here, the church is a gift to this dark world. And it is a measure of the darkness of the world that it wants nothing to do with the church. You see? Okay, well that still then begs the question, just as before. What has to be true of the church in order to have that kind of influence on the world? And Jesus says the salt has to retain its saltiness. The light cannot be hidden. The light to do the, to the darkness any good has to be visible. I, the, the, uh, this city cannot be cozily nestled down in a little valley hidden away from anyone to be able to see. The, the, the lamp cannot then be foolishly covered over by some sort of basket or bucket. It does no good. 
In fact, you could even make a case, this might be stretching the metaphor, to say it will be then extinguished. Maybe. Maybe. Jesus' point is we have to be visible. We cannot be isolated and hidden from the world around us if we are to be the light of the world as Jesus has called us to be. I know, I know, we're not supposed to be of the world, but we still have to be in it. You understand? For the, for the church, for that light to do any good, it, no, it cannot be of the world, but it has to still, we have to still be in it, not isolated, not hidden away, not cloistered off in our little rabbit holes. It can be so tempting, though, right, to go the other way. Um, so tempting. Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. It's an astonishing calling, but there is this condition. Uh, some months ago, when I was on that trip to Israel, we had the opportunity to, to visit the Dead Sea area, and when we went, were in that area, we went to what is referred to as the Qumran community. Now, that's where the Essenes lived back uh, in, the, in the decades around Jesus' lifetime, and the Essenes were there while Jesus is teaching this. Uh, this is a, a Jewish group uh, that was just uh, sick to death of all the corruption among the priesthood there in Jerusalem, and so they decided to remove themselves and settle out in the wilderness, this desert, this desolate, dry, arid place, the Essenes. Uh, they were committed to moral purity, to true uh, deep, penetrating, we would say authentic community to the study and preservation of sacred texts. You know how we got the Dead Sea Scrolls? From them. Here's the problem. These self-proclaimed sons of light, that's how they describe themselves, the self-proclaimed sons of light hid themselves away and lit up no one. Is that us? It could be. It could be. Jesus is saying, I mean, the emphasis here in both of these, in, in the salt and the light, you. It's even in the Greek, the emphasis, you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. In your words, in your life, as he says here, in your good works, that the world, the watching world, will be drawn to your heavenly Father, who, by the way, is the source of this light, that you are but reflecting like the moon up in the sky, reflecting the light of the sun. That's us, many moons. That's us. That's our calling. We are to speak and to live the truth, not to conceal ourselves, not to hide ourselves, not to pretend that we are something that we aren't, but to actually be and live as the light of the world. And at the same, all the while aware of the temptation to hide. Out of fear, right? Fear of being known. Fear of losing favor. Or conversely, a desire so much to be liked that we lose sight of the call to love. And so there is no light. Jesus intends for His church, His people, His followers to be an influence in this world of salt and light. Let me come back to where we started. 
We have a sense, all of us, some of us maybe more so than others, but we all have a sense that things in this world, things in our, in our community, things in our families, things in the larger world are certainly not the way they are supposed to be. There is a, therein oftentimes a good desire, I would say a God-given desire, to change things, to make a difference, to make an impact. But the problem is, of course, the, so many of the problems are so complicated, so significant, so great, and we seem so what? Insignificant, so small. What difference could we possibly make in anything? How could we address anything? It's a good question to ask. Where do you start? Where do we start? It starts with understanding how change comes. You have to begin there. And it's not going... Remember what I said earlier? If you want to start a revolution, you have to do things in a revolutionary new way, which means that ultimately the deepest change in our culture, in our community, is going to come about not through amassing a bigger war chest or a better super PAC or more money or more Facebook followers or better strategies or, you know, whatever. Nor is it going to come by taking over and influencing the halls of power and politics and government and the, the seats of higher education and taking over popular culture and the arts and the media. By the way, though, let me say this as a qualifier, we as Christians are called to serve in those places. My point is this, though. This is not a power game. This is not about a power grab. This is not just by assuming if we can take that hill, do the world's work, if you will, the, you know, do the Lord's work the, Lord, the world's way. Not going to work. We do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Well, what does that mean? It means beatitudinal living. It means being salt and light. How do you do that? How, how, how do you live as a citizen of the kingdom? Well, you embrace the gospel of the kingdom. You put yourself under the rule and reign of the king. You come to understand and acknowledge and embrace the finished work of the king on the cross for you, and you follow him with all you are and wherever he takes you. That is Christ's vision for the world, for his church in the world. May it be ours. Let's pray. O King, Lord Jesus, you have come, and thank you for the assurance that you are coming again to finish what you started, to reclaim, to renew, to redeem. We now live between the times, and the now and the not yet, and the tension of living with that vision of what yet is coming. And every day with your interests in mind. You've called us out to be your citizens and your followers. We pray that you'd help us to know increasingly so. What does it look like for us to be salt and light? Help us to see the world as it truly is. As a dark and decaying place. And we are called to love. By dispelling darkness and pushing back against the decay. 
We ask also that you'd help us to understand that condition of our calling and aware of our frailties, aware of our weaknesses, aware of our temptations. And thank you that we don't have to go about this alone, that the King goes with us and you give us one another. We pray that you would give us your vision for the world and for your church. And we pray this in your name. Amen.